Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome, everyone, to the Federalist Society's Teleform Conference Call. As this afternoon, March 22nd, 2021, we're covering oral arguments in Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid. Uh, oral arguments in this case were heard earlier this morning at the court, and we're covering them now today. I'm Nick Marr, Assistant Director of Practice Groups here at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that expressions of opinion on the call today are those of our expert. And just a brief brief introduction, Uh, we're very pleased to be joined this afternoon by Mr. Wen Fa. He's an attorney at Pacific Legal Foundation. Mr. Fa is going to give um, case overview, uh, review the oral arguments, and then we'll leave some time at the end for audience questions. So be thinking of those as we go along and be prepared for when we get to that portion of the call. All right. And with that, thanks very much for being with us here, Wen. I'll give the floor to you. Uh, thank you, Nick, and thank you as always for the federal to the Federalist Society for having me on. Uh, as you mentioned, this uh, I will be talking about Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid, an important property rights case that was argued before the Supreme Court of the United States by my colleague Joshua Thompson this morning. Uh, I do want to give two brief caveats right up right off the bat. Uh, first, I am one of the attorneys representing the petitioners in this case. And second, uh, I am here, of course, speaking uh, only on, uh, on my personal, in my personal capacity, all the views expressed are my own. Um, the arguments I think were made fully and adequately in, in our briefs and at the oral argument this morning. So with that, let's jump into the case. Uh, this case involves a takings challenge to an access regulation promulgated by California's Agriculture and Labor Relations Board. Um, this access regulation was promulgated in 1975. It applied to every single agricultural business in California, and it allows union organizers to come onto the land of private agricultural growers in California for three hours per day, 120 days per year. The access regulation allows union organizers to come onto the land for the purposes of soliciting uh, employees to join the union, meaning take access for an hour before lunch, an hour during lunch, an hour after, uh, after work, and they may take access for four 30-day periods throughout the year. Now, right after this access regulation was promulgated in 1975, it was immediately challenged by a group of growers in state court. And the state superior court actually issued injunctions in joining California from enforcing this access regulation. But the California Supreme Court, in a divided decision, ended up reversing those decisions and allowing the access regulation to continue to stay in effect in Pandal and Sons in 1976. So uh, there is uh, a similar law uh, under the federal uh, federal NLRA, but those the access under the NLRA and access that's allowed under the California law are different in some meaningful respects. So under the NLRA, uh, Union organizers are only able to access a property uh, where they are, where the workers are otherwise inaccessible. So this is really limited to company towns where they, 
the employees live on the land of the employers. Um, and similarly, the case is interpreting uh, NLRA, the NL access under the NLRA that has found inaccessibility were cases from the 30s, 40s, and 50s uh, in which obviously the employees did not have anything uh, remotely similar to cell phones, smartphones, um, or anything like that. Uh, the agriculture, the petitioners in this case are a group of agricultural growers in California that's subject to the access regulation. Uh, one of the petitioners is Cedar Point Nursery. The nursery is a, a small grower in Doris, California, right near the California-Oregon border. Um, the nursery specializes in growing strawberry plants that other growers, in turn, take and plant uh, in order to grow strawberries, not just for Californians, but for uh, Americans across the United States. Uh, Cedar Point's workers um, live, uh, none of Cedar Point's workers live on site. The workers all live in hotels um, in nearby Klamath Falls that are actually paid for by Cedar Point Nursery. Now, shortly before we filed a lawsuit, uh, in October 2015, during a busy harvest season, union organizers took access onto the property uh, of Cedar Point. They did so at 5 a.m. during a busy harvest season, and they came in as alleged in the complaint. They came in uh, to the trim sheds with bullhorns, and this ended up scaring uh, many of the employees at Cedar Point Nursery. Fowler Packing Company is a grower located in Fresno, California. It specializes in growing citrus and table grapes. Uh, if anybody has had uh, a mandarin orange uh, from the company Peels, that is uh, grown by Fowler Packing. Uh, now, Fowler Packing actually does not really employ uh, many migrant workers. It employs full-time workers, about 2,000 full-time workers, and the workers actually live in houses um, around the Fresno area. In 2015, the, uh, the union filed a notice of intent to take access on the property of Fowler Packing Company. The Fowler Packing Company refused the organizers, refused to allow the organizers onto the property, and uh, the union ended up filing an unfair labor charge uh, before the board that was suspiciously dismissed uh, right on the eve of this lawsuit. So in 2016, the growers filed a challenge under the takings clause in federal court, uh, challenging this as a taking. Now, as relevant here, the growers alleged that what the access regulation did was it took an easement on the property of Cedar Point uh, and Fowler and gave that easement uh, for the benefit of union organizers. Uh, the growers filed both a preliminary injunction and uh, a complaint uh, in February 2016. The, um, the board who were the defendants, the board members were the defendants in the case, and the board subsequently filed in not just an opposition to that preliminary injunction motion, but also a motion to dismiss. The district court denied the motion for a preliminary injunction and also dismissed the case on grounds that it found that the growers did not allege a physical taking. The district court reasoned that because the uh, access regulation did not allow for 24-7 365 access, 
that it cannot be a physical taking because it did not amount to a permanent physical occupation. Uh, we appealed that case to the circuit court, and I argued that case before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in uh, 2017, November 2017, and in the divided 2-1 decision, the circuit court affirmed the district court's decision. The uh, panel majority held that because um, access was limited in time to three hours per day and 120 days per year because it was not around-the-clock access, then any challenge uh, will not be permitted to go forward under the physical takings analysis, but must in, instead uh, proceed on a regulatory analysis under the multi-factor balancing test of Penn Central. Uh, the growers did not allege uh, a taking under the Penn Central test. The growers did not believe that was a proper test for, for analyzing the access regulation in this case. So the growers filed a petition for rehearing and bank. The Ninth Circuit denied that petition, but as notable here, uh, the denial, the denial uh, of the in-bank decision was followed by a dissent by Judge Ikuda on the Ninth Circuit, joined by seven other judges on the Ninth Circuit, which argued that uh, the, the Ninth Circuit should hear this case because, and its failure to do so created a circuit split and was inconsistent uh, with uh, the Supreme Court's precedent. The uh, Judge Ikuda's defense from denial of rehearing and bank also reasoned that the uh, access regulation took an easement and any time limitations on that easement would go toward the amount of compensation that is just rather than whether there has been a taking in the first place. Now, after Judge Ikuda, after that uh, petition for rehearing and bank was denied, the growers filed their cert petition uh, before the Supreme Court of the United States and the Supreme Court granted that cert petition in November uh, 2020. Uh, the, after briefing, the court heard this case. The main arguments in this case hinges on whether uh, the access regulation amounts to a per se physical taking or whether it amounts to a regulatory taking subject to the multi-factor ad hoc balancing test of Penn Central. Petitioner's argument is that this is a per se physical taking. Uh, it is analogous to an easement in that it gives the growers an access easement on the property of agriculture. It gives union organizers the an access regulation on the property of the growers, uh, and any time limits on that easement go towards the compensation that would be just. It doesn't really alter the analysis of whether that is there has been a taking in the first place. Um, petitioners also argue that this really infringes on their right to exclude in a way that that calls for a per se analysis because it allows union organizers to come onto the growers' private property for three hours per day, 120 days per year, um, for the purpose of soliciting union organizers, um, for, for the purpose of soliciting union members. Uh, respondent's argument on the other hand, is that this is a regulatory taking that should be analyzed under the multi-factor balancing test of Penn Central. Um, respondents argue that there are time limits, the time limits on the scope of access that's granted here counsel in favor of the multi-factor balancing test, 
And indeed, at oral argument today, the respondents uh, argued that many of the examples that the justices uh, through uh, at respondents' counsel should be adjudged under the multi-factor balancing test of Penn Central. So with that, let's get to the argument today. Uh, I think the justices asked very interesting questions uh, of both sides um, during the argument. With respect to the petitioner, there were several justices who asked uh, about um, easement characterization. Uh, you know, this is something that the Supreme Court has, uh, you know, has referenced in cases like Portsmouth Harbor and Cosby and uh, Kaiser Aetna. But the, the justices really wanted to know uh, where the easement characterization came from and, you know, why the petitioners analogize this to an access easement. On the other side, there were questions sort of probing the respondents about how far their rule would go. Uh, Justice Alito, for example, asked the board uh, whether a, a, an easement um, that was uh, taken for 360 days uh, per year would be analyzed under a per se rule or under a regular or under the regulatory taking analysis. Uh, the respondent's attorney said that it would it would be analyzed under a multi-factor balancing test. And I think to Justice Alito's surprise, respondent's attorney also claimed that an easement that was 365 days per year that allowed access to 365 days per year would also be analyzed under the regulatory takings framework. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh uh, similarly asked very interesting questions about uh, balancing uh, under the NRA. So the Supreme Court in interpreting the, type, the scope of access allowed under the NRA has said that the union organizers may uh, take access onto private property only in cases in which the employees are not otherwise accessible. And Justice Kavanaugh asked why, well, if that's a good enough rule under the NRA, why isn't that a good enough rule under the ARA? So those were the, the most fascinating questions, in my opinion, uh, that were asked today. Uh, but there were several other takeaways that I think um, uh, could be drawn from today's argument. Uh, you know, Justice Barrett mentioned that, you know, there, there might be line drawing uh, problems on either side. Uh, petitioners uh, argue that uh, petitioners deal with this problem by saying that, you know, you have to look to the common law and you have to look at the, the scope of the right to exclude at common law. So, you know, you can have inspections, for example, that are reasonable searches under the common law and reasonable searches under the Fourth Amendment. And under the common law, the Constitution allows government agents and their delegates to conduct reasonable searches. So reasonable searches uh, would not constitute a takings uh, under the rule that petitioners propose. Uh, respondents have a different way of dealing with the line drawing problem. Uh, respondents argue that pretty much everything should be uh, analyzed under the multi-factor balancing test of Penn Central. So they argue that regardless of whether an easement is for an hour a day, uh, 360 days, uh, 360 days a year, 365 days a year, that would all be analyzed under a multi-factor uh, balancing test of Penn Central. So it'll be interesting to see which way the court will go. Uh, you know, after the argument today, we expect that a decision will come down from the court. Uh, probably in June, at, near the end of the term, 
And, uh, you know, obviously all sides are eagerly waiting, awaiting the decision. Uh, with that, I will open it up for audience questions. Great. Thank you so much. No audience questions in the queue right now. Uh, when you maybe address this earlier, but anything you heard in the oral arguments that struck you as kind of unexpected, any justices taking a route you didn't really expect or opening up a part of the case you didn't see coming? Yeah, you know, I uh, personally, I was surprised uh, of the the view that uh, California took at argument that all of these easements, um, all, you know, no matter the scope of the access, they should all be analyzed, uh, their, their argument that they should all be analyzed under the multi-factor balancing test of Penn Central. You know, as I read their brief uh, on the merits, they said that, you know, a daylight hours easement might well qualify uh, as a taking under the per se physical takings analysis. But it seemed to me that they switched their argument a little bit in between when they filed their respondent's brief and that argument. And now they're moving everything into the ad hoc balancing test of Penn Central. And I think as Justice Barrett pointed out, you know, that balancing test really is uh, one, not applicable when a property interest has been taken. And two, it's very hostile to property owners. You know, property owners in Penn Central cases can lose millions of dollars uh, in the value of their property and not receive a penny in compensation. And we really don't think that the Penn Central multi-factor balancing test is appropriate here. Great. Makes sense. So we've gotten three uh, questions in the queue. So we'll go to our first one. Hey, Wen, this is Paul Beard. Um, I had a, I had a, a two-pronged question on uh, Kavanaugh's Babcock, and maybe even Sotomayor's interest in Babcock. The briefing didn't seem to really focus on that case, and I think for obvious reasons. And I'm wondering if, um, one, whether PLF's theory was that uh, even if the regulation satisfies Babcock, it's still unconstitutional. And obviously, the goal was to reach the constitutional question. So I'm wondering what the, what PLF's position was or is with respect to Babcock and its relevance here. And the, the second question is more procedural. Do you think there's any chance of, a, of, of an opinion, whether majority or concurrence, based or even dissent, based on Babcock, when the issue was not fully briefed. So I'm, I'm curious to know what your predictions are on, on that aspect of it. Yeah, thank you, Paul. Uh, let me take the second question first. Um, you know, I always hesitate to hazard a guess uh, on how the Supreme Court will come out in any particular case. And it's just because my, my track record of it is so poor. But I will say that that it did seem to me that uh, a few of the justices, uh, I think most especially Justice Kavanaugh, was really interested uh, in the uh, Babcock line of questioning. With respect to the brief itself, it is true that we didn't um, pursue, we didn't uh, cite Babcock uh, that often. I don't think either party cited Babcock all that often in their briefing. Uh, and that is because, you know, Babcock, as, as I read it, uh, is a case dealing with statutory interpretation. I think Justice Kavanaugh viewed it as one of constitutional avoidance. But the issue here is whether the access regulation affects 
a per se physical taking uh, from a constitutional perspective. And I think that's why we rely more heavily on cases like Nolan, on cases like Portsmouth Harbor, uh, Cosby, and Kaiser Aetna. Great. We'll go to our next question now. Hi, thank you very much. This is Gregory Dolan from the University of Baltimore. Um, and I guess I was wondering, um, how do, do the petitioners deal with a uh, problem that there are you know, a number of instances where government requires, for example, inspections or even potentially presence of government actors at a business to ensure certain compliance with regulatory requirements, uh, and those people may be present, you know, either permanently or fairly regularly. Uh, how does how do petitioners sort of deal with that um, with a potential problem that if uh, what is happening in California is a taking, then a number of other government regulations uh, that protect consumer safety, for example, when it comes to uh, drug manufacturing or meat, um, you know, slaughterhouses, might also then um, become problematic or at least have to be analyzed as a um, per se taking? Uh, Professor, thank you for that question. Uh, let me start off by saying I don't agree with the premise that, uh, you know, many of those other laws that are mentioned by respondents and their amici uh, would be called into question. And I would encourage it everyone to look at our uh, reply brief, especially for for uh, uh, extended analysis of our response to those hypotheticals that were raised. Um, you know, we do think that, you know, the access regulation uh, infringes on the right to exclude in a way that, uh, you know, really contradicts a property owner's right to exclude at common law. Uh, we do believe that at common law, you know, the Fourth Amendment is a background principle or, or the ability of the government to conduct reasonable searches is a background principle, and that background principle is encompassed, I think, in the Fourth Amendment. So we think, you know, it would not call, it would not call into question the government's uh, ability to conduct reasonable inspections. Now, I do think that, you know, there are perhaps some inspections that might raise Fourth Amendment issues, but, you know, I think most inspections would neither raise Fourth Amendment issues nor Fifth Amendment issues. Um, another way of dealing with it, uh, you know, some of the hypotheticals you posed, is the way that the Chamber of Commerce deals with it in its amicus brief in support of petitioners and uh, a way that we deal with it in um, our um, reply brief. And that's to say that there are some constitutional conditions that the government can impose in certain industries. So, for example, you know, uh, you might have um, – a, a property owner that's operating in a very dangerous or heavily regulated field. And, you know, the, 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 the government may be able to access a constitutional condition in certain cases that complies with the requirements, you know, as laid out by the Supreme Court in cases like Nolan and Dolan. So we don't think the hypotheticals that were raised by respondents or their amici would really be called into question. We do think that the access regulation presents a special and unique sort of infringement on the right to exclude and that it takes an access easement on the private property of agricultural growers for the benefit of third-party union organizers uh, for three hours per day, 120 days per year. Thank you. Alrighty, next question, and this is the last one in the queue. Yeah, hi, uh, Dave Rigdon from uh, Carson City, Nevada. 
Hey, um, just kind of following up a little bit on the last question. So the, 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 the use of the property that's at stake here is not a, is not a use for the general public, nor is it a use for a, a, an actual public official, uh, but it's a use for a, a, a single private third party, like you just mentioned. Uh, and, I, and I'm curious, uh, because of that, if it was determined that it's an access easement that they're actually taking on the property, uh, under your theory, uh, if there's, and, and I know it wasn't argued at all, but if, if there's any chance to revisit New London's public use versus versus public purpose uh, distinction, uh, any chance for the court to do that here, given that this seems to be for a public purpose and not a public use? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. As you mentioned, uh, this is not something uh, that was uh, alleged in the complaint. Uh, you know, it's possible that that might be uh, one route to go um, on remand. You know, I think I, I think it would be an unconstitutional taking, even if it were uh, for public use. But in my personal view, uh, the Kilo decision was wrongly decided, and I think the public use um, aspect has been um, uh, really stretched. Um, uh, outside of its proper scope. Um, so, you know, it might be something to consider uh, for the district court to consider on remand. Um, but, you know, even if this were for a public use, you know, I, I still think it would be uh, a taking without just compensation. Thank you. All right. No audience questions in the queue right now. So when I'll turn the floor back to you, if there's anything you didn't cover in your remarks or we didn't get to in questions you'd like to add, Go ahead and do that now. I'll let you know if a question comes up in the queue. Um, otherwise, if you'd like to close out to any closing remarks you might have. Yeah, sure. So I, I just want to, again, uh, thank you. Uh, thank the Federalist Society for hosting this teleforum. Um, you know, I think this is a very important uh, case for property rights. You know, I'm very grateful um, to uh, our clients, I'm very grateful to the team, Joshua Thompson, who argued the case this morning, as well as uh, team members, uh, Chris Keezer and Damien Sheff. I think this is a very important case for property rights. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the Penn Central uh, framework uh, allows the government to impose regulations that uh, decrease the property value uh, of property owners by, you know, millions of dollars and without paying a penny in just compensation. So I think, you know, I think this case is really important for the future of property rights. Great. Thanks very much. And so we'll close up a little early this afternoon. On behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank you, Mr. Fowler, for the benefit of your valuable time and expertise this afternoon covering these oral arguments, especially doing it so quickly as arguments were just heard this morning. Uh, so we really appreciate that. To the audience for calling in, listening, and for your good questions. As always, we welcome your feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. Uh, also be checking your emails and our website for announcements about upcoming teleform calls and Zoom events. Uh, we've got a packed week this week, so be sure to check the website uh, to see what you might want to tune into. All right, until next time, we are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.